You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. It may come as a surprise to anyone who has listened to my podcast, but I have a framed picture of Rich Gannon in his Oakland Raiders jersey on my wall. As a lifelong Chiefs fan, it bothers me every time I look at that image. But then I remember that Gannon, along with former Major League Baseball player Mike Sweeney and WNBA player Lisa Leslie, are on the cover of the FCA Bible I helped produce because of who they are, not who they played for. Gannon played for four different teams in his 18-year NFL career. He was part of the Chiefs from 1995 to 98, but he had the most success as a member of the Raiders. He was named uh, to the Pro Bowl in four straight seasons, two All-Pro selections, and was named NFL MVP as a member of the Raiders. After retiring, he launched a long career as a game analyst for CBS, and in spite of being best known as a Raider, he's a really nice guy. Rich, welcome to Sports Connections. David, thanks for having me, brother. And uh, those those years in Kansas City were so special, and, and not just because of the results that we we had on the field, but because of the locker room and the makeup and the and the chemistry of that football team. There was some of my best friends. I uh, still am very close with Tim Grunhard and Dave Zott and John Alt and Will Shields and Tony Gonzalez and Marcus Allen. So many great players, but e- but even more important, great people. Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> playing professional for playing professional football for 18 years is quite an accomplishment. What are you most proud of in your football career? I certainly think that the longevity is important. Uh, remember, David, I, I didn't come to the league with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was a, a fourth round pick out of the University of Delaware by the New England Patriots. They, they thought so much of me that they didn't, they didn't even want to give me a chance to play quarterback. And so six days after the draft, I got traded to the Minnesota Vikings where, you know, I really got a chance to watch and, and learn behind two veteran quarterbacks, Wade Wilson and Tommy Kramer. And then, you know, finally got a chance to play uh, in the late 80s and early part of the 90s and went through some coaching changes, system changes, coordinator changes, and eventually got traded to the Washington Redskins and spent a year there. And then had shoulder surgeries out of football a year before coming to Kansas City. So I guess what I'm most proud of is the fact that I think I was a good teammate. Uh, I think I was very coachable. And, you know, I was able to last. I mean, I think there's something to be said for – uh, a long career. Uh, I took great pride in my preparation performance, was always prepared and, and tried to play at the, at the highest level possible. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we've heard, we've all heard the expression that NFL stands for not for long. And the, I guess the average career is three years or three point something years. And so 18 years, that's, that's pretty impressive. I was lucky, you know, I, uh, I, I got the opportunity to, I, first of all, I came in with the right attitude. I, I always felt like every day I walked in the building, I was being evaluated. And, you know, you had to be prepared. Um, you had to put your best foot forward. Um, you know, I was, I was a competitive guy, whether it was on the practice field, whether it was in the weight room, uh, the meeting rooms, uh, you know, on game day. I, I just tried to make sure that, you know, I, I didn't let my teammates down. And so, uh, or the coaches. You know, the other thing, Dave, is these coaches put in so much time. I think about Marty Schottenheimer's staff there in Kansas City and all those great coaches that we had, but they they were they burned the candle at both ends. And and so, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was go out there and and not perform to a certain level and then feel like I let them down. You know, because if yeah. the players don't play well, eventually they fire the coaches, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I just didn't want that to happen on my watch. Yeah. <clears throat> um, looking at your football resume, and you talked about it, you know, 
fourth round draft pick, University of Delaware, not exactly a football hotbed. I think a good way to describe your career was overachiever. Do you feel like you achieve more than your talent should have taken you? I don't think so. Um, and I don't look at that as a derogatory term. I mean, I, I just, I felt like I certainly had the ability. I think there's certain, uh, there are certain coaches and general managers that I, I think saw something in me coming out of Delaware. Uh, I was kind of a tweener. I just, I, I played in the Delaware wing T, So it was, it was going to be a process for me to, yeah. to get up to speed with the, the pro passing game. But I think once that finally happened, I, I, I felt like I certainly belonged. Um, you know, I had, some good success in Minnesota. Uh, the year in Washington was kind of a waste, but played some good football in Kansas City. Was part of two teams that went 13 and three. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to play in the playoffs very much, but um, you know, it's a story for a different day. But and then I got the chance to go to Oakland and really have the keys to the car, really have, you know, really be the quarterback and, and mm -hmm. uh, have an owner and a general manager and a head coach that really believed in me enough to, to afford me that opportunity. So uh, I, I just, that's really where my career kind of took off and I had the most success. And I think part of it, David, is the fact that someone really believed in me, you know, and someone really believed that I could be that franchise quarterback and most importantly gave me the opportunity. Now you called it a story for a different day, but I'm going to talk about it today. <clears throat> there are a lot of people in Kansas city who are still upset. What? 23 years later, 20 more than that, I guess, 25 years later that, you were replaced in the starting lineup after Elvis Gerback got healthy because Marty had a rule that you didn't lose your job because of injury. Did you understand the decision? Well, I'll, I have a follow-up to that, but did you understand Marty's decision to put Elvis back in the starting lineup? I didn't, and there was, there was a number of reasons for it. Uh, I think, you know, he had been out, I think, seven or eight weeks, and so obviously I was concerned, like a lot of other teammates were concerned about his physical conditioning. There's just no way yeah. when you miss that much time that you could have yourself, you know, physically ready to go out and play um, in the playoffs. I mean, we're not even talking about the regular season. The speed of the game, in the playoffs is is, right. is, is 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 certainly kicked up a notch. And so, I was concerned about that. I also didn't agree with the rule. I, I don't I don't know where that rule came from. I've never heard of it before. I mean, just because you get hurt. Uh, and somebody else comes in and plays better or plays with more consistency, then you have this decision to make. And I think a lot of the coaches on that staff wanted to see me continue to play because we were in a rhythm. We were playing really well offensively. Yeah. didn't want to break up that rhythm. And, and what happened with Elvis in that game, he just ran out of gas. I mean, he just simply was not ready to play physically or even mentally. And that was unfortunate to put him in that position because we were a good enough team to win, certainly beat Denver at home, and I think to go on to win a, a Super Bowl. We had the best defense in all of football, and it wasn't even close. I mean, yeah. all, we, all you had to do was go out there. If you could score, you know, 17 points a week, you were going to win with our defense. And so we weren't even able to do that in the postseason. That that was what was frustrating. I think I, I think I brought something, I think, as time would tell, I, I think I brought a, a different type of leadership to the, to the football team. Uh, I played with a certain style. I think the players really respected that. And I've talked to, obviously, even Marty, but I certainly talked to a lot of those players that are still kind of bitter that that happened. Yeah, I, as you know, uh, we connected through Tim, uh, and, and I've helped him write a book. And he talked about that season, and he said, as, as one of the veteran leaders on the team, he said, I had to support Elvis because if I had raised a stink, if I had said Rich should keep in here, it would have disagreed with what Marty was saying and – we would have had a divided locker room. He said, so I had to support Elvis, but deep down 
<laughs> we should we should have kept Rich in starting position. Yeah, I think we all honestly. I, I think I I supported him. I mean Elvis, and yeah. I remember Mike McCarthy, our quarterback coach, coming to me at the time because you know we had been playing pretty well, and and you could tell there was going to be uh, a decision had to be made, and he asked me to you know if I could be supportive of Elvis, and I had been. I. I was a great teammate. I was always helpful. I tried to help him prepare and get ready for games. I did a lot of the scout teamwork to get our defense ready. I mean, I, I tried to be a really good teammate and a good leader on the team in any way possible. And I, I, even at the point of me standing up in the middle of a team meeting and saying, I think we should, you know, I think Elvis is, is the right guy at the right time to help, you know, help us get where we want to go. That was hard for me to say that because really in my heart of hearts, I truly didn't believe it. I felt like I gave us the best chance of winning. But, you know, Marty was kind of a stubborn guy. I think he had kind of made up his decision in the direction he wanted to go. I don't know that Marty ever truly believed that I was the the franchise quarterback that the Chiefs have been looking for. And I think what's so ironic about that situation is I went to, to Oakland and, you know, we had great success against the Kansas City Chiefs. And certainly I think when you look at my career, even compared to Steve Bono or Elvis Gerbach, I think – and I mean, hindsight's 2020, but I think I would have, I would have been the guy to, to lead the Chiefs in 95 and 97. Yeah, because 97, the, <clears throat> you guys lost to the Broncos and they won the Super Bowl. So it was just, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I, oh. I'm i not one to, you know, uh, I, I saw a quote recently from uh, Satchel Page, don't look back, something may be gaining on you. I don't, we learn from the past. I don't think we should dwell on it, but I can look back and say, man, we, my Chiefs would have been in the Super Bowl and probably won it had Rich Gannon been the quarterback instead of Elvis. We had a really good team. I mean, I mean, we just we had a great offensive line. We had a really good running game. We weren't overly talented at the wide receiver position, but we were good enough. We had a good young uh, developing tight end, and of course, we had the best defense. I mean, that was yeah. had that team gone on to win a Super Bowl. We talk about the Chicago Bear defense in, in 85, talk about the Ravens defense in 2000. I think the Kansas City Chiefs would be in that conversation. That's how good that defense was. You know, wow. we had great line play. Linebackers were terrific. We had really good safeties and two of the best corners in football at the time, and Dale Carter and James Hasty. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> on, a, on a personal note, Rich, you in my mind, you went from great guy, glad he's on my team, to Darth Vader in one transaction. How were you treated when you came back to Kansas City with the Raiders? You know, I never in a million years uh, thought that I'd wind up in, in Oakland. And I remember after the 97 season uh, or the 98 season, uh, my wife coming to me and saying, hey, where do you think we're going to wind up? And I said, I have no idea, but I can tell you one place we won't wind up, and that's in Oakland. And, of course, <laughs> the agency rolls around, Tom Condon, another Kansas City guy, who was my agent for uh, for most of my career said to me, "Hey, uh, Al Davis and John Gruden want you to go out and visit with the Raiders and the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I'm sorry, the St. Louis Rams were interested at the time as well. And uh, as it turned out, um, you know, they went up signing Trent Green. I went to to Oakland and signed with the Raiders. But you know, I, I went out there and I had a different perspective once I sat down and visited with John Gruden. I just I thought he and I." really hit it off and um, had a really good relationship. And I, I think it was, you know, certainly was a good pairing, but uh, I never thought in a million years I'd wind up in Oakland. It, it was a, uh, I would say it was a, uh, a shock to my system 
in, in more ways than one. It was when I went into the Oakland, I didn't realize how bad things were. It was a very dysfunctional mm-hmm. environment, very different than what I saw in Kansas City. Were you treated well by the fans when you came back? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly the fans were appreciative of, of who I was and am you know, as a person, as a player, you know, try to be a good teammate and a good a good member of the Chiefs. I love the organization, never wanted to leave. And uh, but they were tough. I mean, it was I, I think coming back to Kansas City at Arrowhead was the hardest place to play for me. I mean, it, the, the crowd noise was deafening. You know, you'd have false starts. You have guys that just couldn't hear the play call in the huddle. You couldn't audible. It's hard to audible. Very difficult to communicate. Even the play coming in from the sidelines, it was, you know, it was just a, a huge home field advantage. And so I just remember going down there and, and just I think what I tried to do was prepare our team. Because I don't know that the the Raiders really had a sense of what Raider Week was like for the people in Kansas City. I'm talking about the fans, and more importantly, the, the, the people within the organization. Because Marty Schottenheimer, the best thing he ever did was make sure that that was a game we circled on our calendar. I mean, there was no love lost between the Chiefs and the Raiders. But I didn't get the sense when I went to Oakland, David, that they had that the Raiders had the same. Uh, philosophy or the same attitude towards the Chiefs. And I think their focus was more towards maybe Denver and the Chargers and not necessarily Kansas City. Maybe it's a big reason why we had a lot of success against the Raiders when I was in Kansas City. I'll, I'll tell you a story from, you know, with the Chiefs before you got here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When, when uh, Carl and Marty got hired, uh, I was living out in Manhattan, Kansas, and I, you know, the schedule came out, the home opener, in 1989 was against the Raiders. And so I asked the sports editor if I could do a freelance article for him, cover, cover the home opener. And he, he agreed, let me do that. And so I got on the, the um, media phone call the week of the game. And I asked a question to Marty. I said, you're an old AFL guy. Talk about the rivalry between the chiefs and the Raiders and chiefs hadn't been good in a while. You know, is it still an intense rivalry? And Marty said, no, that's an old AFL thing. You know, and he just really downplayed it quite a bit. Well, that was a knockdown, drag out slugfest. And, you know, Chiefs ended up winning late. And I, I remember sitting in the front row of the press uh, press area after the game. And Marty's sitting there with his Diet Coke and his hands are shaking like this. They said he had his opening statement and then they asked for questions. I raised my hand. They called on me and I said, uh, Marty, what do you think of the rivalry now? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, it's still yeah. a rivalry. And that's when, you know, <clears throat> they do commercials on Raiders week on TV. You know, uh, people in all walks of life that did regular commercials talked about we hate the Raiders. There was a, a guy who had a car dealership, uh, <clears throat> Sunny Hill Motors, up by the Platte City Water Tower. And he said, he came on a commercial. It's Raiders week. If I catch a Raider trying to shop for one of my cars, I'll hang him by the Platte city water tower. Everybody had their take on it. And it was all driven by Marty. And maybe I can take a little bit of the credit because I reminded him that it was, it was a rivalry when he first got here, but I'm, I'm told Tim said it was Raiders week. It didn't matter what else was going on. You focused on beating the Raiders. Yeah. Marty did a really good job. I think when he first came to Kansas city, I think he realized that, in order to right the ship and to get this organization headed in the right direction, he had to take care of business with the Raiders. And certainly he went back. He was very familiar with the history between Al Davis and 
and uh, the, you know the great players that the Raiders had. They were they were known to stretch the rules, very physical sometimes. <laughs> Things would happen after the whistle. So Marty didn't like that, and he wanted yeah. to make sure all of us were aware of that. And he did a phenomenal job of educating even the new players. So think about it. David, every year the team turns over. You add rookies to the roster. You add veteran free agents. Uh, you add college free agents. And so you, know, you want to make sure that those players understand your culture and your environment. And when it got to Raider Week, Marty was crystal clear on what the expectations were, crystal clear on what the assignment was, and crystal clear on how we're going to go out and execute the assignment. And um, I, I think that's the best thing that Marty ever did in Kansas City. He made sure that we took care of business with the Raiders. All right. Uh, growing up in Kansas City in the 1960s, my parents told my brother and me, hate is not a virtue that's allowed in this house, not a Christian virtue. We are not allowed to hate except the Raiders. We were, <laughs> we were allowed to hate the Raiders. So as a player who played on different teams, how important, how important was the opponent? How important was a rivalry? Well, it's really important. I think it's, it's, it's even more so uh, when you respect the rivalry and you consider it a rivalry. I think the mistake you make is saying, well, this isn't, you know, from the Raiders' perspective, well, it's not really, we're not overly concerned about Kansas City when, when meanwhile, everyone in Kansas City is wearing, you know, red all week and they have it yeah. all over the bulletin boards and all over the news and it's Raider week. And, and the players really bought, on, bought into that. It was kind of, I don't want to say it was our homecoming game, but it was, it was one of the most important games on our calendar. And we didn't treat that like just any other game. I mean, it was, it was a laser-like focus. The intensity was amazing. Mm -hmm. It was a very physical week of practices. Um, you know, people came early, stayed late. And, um, you know, it, it was it was personal, I think, with a lot of the players and coaches. And I think when you create that type of uh, focus and environment, uh, I think it's conducive to winning. And that's why we had great success against the Raiders. So when you when you signed with the Raiders, were you able to communicate the atmosphere in Kansas City to your teammates and say, hey, this is a big deal for those guys. We need to make it a big deal for us. It's a great point, uh, David, because I just remember the very first uh, time we played the Raiders in, in 99. And I just got the sense that nobody in the building had any idea what they were getting into. Nobody. I'm talking about coaches. I'm talking about the players. So I asked John Gruden, I said, is there any way I can stand up and address the team? And he said, sure. So I tried as best I could to explain to the players what it was going to be like, what the environment was going to be like, how these players took it personally. And I don't know that they, that they totally got it initially, but I think over time they began to figure it out that this is just not another game. I mean, you better strap your helmet on nice and tight. You better lace up those you know shoulder pads a little snugger because it was going to be a very physical, violent game. You know, we talked about the fact of my friendship with Tim. Uh, he told me that you bonded with his kids one year at a Pro Bowl in Hawaii to the point where I can't remember if it was Colin or CJ. He asked for a Rich Gannon Raiders jersey for Christmas. And Tim said it was really difficult for him as a Chiefs player to take his son around town with him because he always wanted to wear the Rich Gannon. You know, I don't know how many people even recognize that it was a Rich Gannon jersey. It was a Raiders jersey, and here's Tim's son wearing that. Do you have any similar rivalry stories like that? Well, I mean, I, I do remember – I mean, I just remember, obviously, Tim and Sarah were really dear friends of ours when we were in Kansas City. I, I just – you know, I, I'm always asked – you know, he played, he played all these years, you know, 18 years, and 
who are your favorite teammates? And I, I always, one of them is always Tim Grunhardt because, you know, he was just such a likable character. I mean, he was so funny in the locker room. He's always playing practical jokes. He always was smiling. He'd be smiling in the huddle uh, during a television timeout. He was ultra competitive. He was a hard worker. He was tough. He he had so many of the qualities and intangibles that you, you would want uh, at that position, you know, the offensive line, and most importantly, the center. He was kind of the captain of the offensive line. Right. But he was a, he was a guy that everyone in the locker room, whether you were an offensive player, a defensive player, whether you were a starter, whether you were a backup, if you had a problem, you went to Tim Grunard. He, he was a guy that everybody respected, the coaches, the players. Uh, and I just, you know, that, that made a huge impression on me. I think we played in the Pro Bowl would have been after the uh, I, I think the 2000 season. And I remember um, the kids being over there and, um, you know, uh, I just adored his family. And so uh, I don't feel bad that his, his son, whichever one it was, uh, asked for a Raider jersey. It, it didn't have to be. I always kid Tim. I said it didn't have to be that way. If Carl Peterson and Marty Schottenheimer just would have done their homework, I would have stayed in Kansas City and <laughs> never would have played for the Raiders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more question about your career and I want to get it about your playing career. And then I want to get into another, another aspect. <clears throat> you obviously were MVP and was that the 2002 season? It was. Okay. <clears throat> Going into the season and you, obviously you're a confident guy. You, you trust in your athletic abilities. Did you believe you had the ability to be the MVP of the NFL? I mean, I think I did. I, I don't know that that was my focus. I mean, I think we're always trying to just focus on winning the AFC West and trying to win a world championship. I think that was even as a player in Kansas City. I mean, he was never on individual accolades, making yeah. Pro Bowls or anything like that. So I think I was certainly capable of it. I think my game was trending in that direction. I, I don't think you just, you're just you just a one-off and win, the, win the, the NFL MVP. I mean, I had a really good season in 99, another good season in 2000, another one in 2001. So I, I think I was I, – I had gone to three straight Pro Bowls. So I felt like I was – becoming a kind of a, you know, franchise type quarterback that people around the league respected. Okay. And then you transition into a very successful broadcasting career. And I've always enjoyed listening to you. I kind of looked past the Raiders thing. I thought, well, he was a chief too, so I can like him, <laughs> but you don't talk down to the listener. So many analysts want to prove how smart they are and how much they know about the game and that the fans don't know that much. You simply pass along knowledge without the arrogance how did you develop your broadcasting style? Well, I think it's it's a craft that you, you learn, you know, and I think it's you get better with reps. When I first started doing the games back in 2005, I wasn't very good. I, I just think, you know, you have to learn the mechanics of the broadcast booth and the timing and the rhythm and the play-by-play -play announcer. It's kind of like a, a song and a dance. But, um, you know, I just uh, – I always – I just felt like, the people that I enjoyed listening to weren't condescending. They weren't arrogant. They weren't preachy. They just, just try to have fun and just, you know, try and advance the storylines, tell you about the game. What are the, you know, the team that's trailing, what do they have to do to get back in the game? The team that's winning, what are they doing well and why are they having success? What are the matchups, you know? So I think that's the, you know, the job of an analyst and the, the ones that I enjoy listening to, I think kind of have that style, you know, it's not about I did this or I did that or, you know, I think they focus on the game. They focus on the field. They focus on what's happening. But most importantly, they try and advance the storyline. What what needs to happen? What's going to happen? What, you know, what do the Chiefs have to do better defensively to slow down, uh, you know, Denver, whatever, you know, the matchup is. And I, that's 
that's what I learned from watching people like John Madden and, and other great uh, analysts that uh, I had a lot of respect for. Who's your favorite analyst today to listen to? You know, I think there's so many good ones out there. Uh, you know, I think obviously you, know, you look at the, the ones that are doing the A game, you know, obviously Troy Aikman and does a nice job. Chris Collinsworth, Tony Romo. Uh, I, I think personally, I think Chris Collinsworth is, is underrated. I think he does a really nice job. He's well-prepared regardless of whether he's working with Al Michaels or Mike Tirico. I think he does a really good job. He's not afraid to, to, to uh, you know, make a stand. He's not afraid to, uh, you know, call somebody out um, and, and not in a, you know, a condescending way, but just right. to say, hey, look, you know, this guy's struggling or this is the matchup they should go after. Um, I think Troy Aikman does a good job. I think he's very prepared. Um, and I think, I think what's really important, David, as you know, as you're watching the game, like I always enjoyed, like, like I thought Dick Emberg and Merle Nolson were a really good pairing. I think Dick Emberg and, and Dan Deardorff were a good pairing. Some people, it's so subjective. Some people don't like, you know, so-and-so or whatever. I just thought that they liked each other. You, yeah. When you listen to Dick Emberg, whoever he was calling a game with, you could tell that he enjoyed the other person's company. Yeah. I think if you if you have a good listen and people are they feel like they're sitting you know next to in your living room watching the game and it's, it's conversational, then I think it, it it comes off and it works. And I think uh, those are the people that I really enjoy listening to. <clears throat> and that's that's a good transition into a question that I I didn't send you ahead of time, but it's just come to mind now. Is you you were partnered for a number of those years with Kevin Harlan, who's obviously from here in Kansas City. A, a good friend of mine, just one of the nicest guys, but one of the most prepared and one of the most professional broadcasters. As you were honing your craft, as you were getting better and better, how important was it to have a play-by-play guy who knew his role and knew your role and basically lifted you up to fill your role? You know, I was lucky when I went to CBS. I got a chance to work with so many different play-by-play announcers. I worked with Dick Emberg. I worked with Don Crickey. I worked with Marv Albert. I worked with Kevin Harlan. I, I worked with um, Greg Gumbel, Ian Eagle, uh, so, Bill McAtee, um, so many different play-by-play announcers. My favorite, uh, without question, was Kevin. I, I spent, of the 17 years at CBS, 10 of them with Kevin, I think. Yeah. A lot of the time ago, we had a, a run early in my career. I think after my second season, I went to work with Kevin for about four or five years. And then I came back to work with him another four or five years at, at the end. And um, my best friend, still to this day, total professional, a total um, unselfish teammate. And that's saying something, you know, sometimes you get into a broadcast booth and somebody stretches out their arms and they want to do all the talk or they want their space. Kevin didn't care. Kevin was all about the broadcast, whatever he could do to make the guy next to him more comfortable. And honestly, um, his versatility. I mean, he could call a basketball game on Thursday. He could call the Sunday uh, one o'clock game. And then you listen to him on Westwood one call the radio call for Monday night football. I mean, he is, he is so good at his craft. No one works harder. No one's more prepared. No one pays more attention to the little details uh, of the broadcast. He rarely, if ever, I would go through a season and maybe once or twice in a season, would he make a mistake? And I mean, it was something so small. Um, it may be instead of second and nine, it was second and five. Um, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, just a mistake that the, the average viewer would never miss. I mean, think about that. He, he's, he has, he's responsible for every player, every name, every call, 
every college, every height, every weight, um, every situational in the game, every punt, punt return. Think about a kick. You know, a punt goes 47 yards in the air. The guy feels the ball at the 35-yard line and returns at seven yards. I mean, you know, for Kevin to spit out that information, and he's got – obviously he's got, I think, the best statistician in all football, Pat McGrath. But they're, they're, the synchronicity between those two. But, but to, to work a whole season with a guy and have him rarely, if ever – make a mistake, I think was so impressive. And the best part of Kevin Harlan, <clears throat> I know that I know accuracy and consistency and all that are important, but the best part of Kevin Harlan is his spontaneity. When he calls a fan running onto the field or the right. squirrel or calling two games at one time late in the 2019 I that season. game with him. Yeah, I remember that. And, and yeah. you even said, which game are you calling? <laughs> yeah, I'm calling both. I'm breaking FCC rules. His spontaneity is so fun. And, and I had him on the podcast last year and I asked him, does he, you know, does he practice doing extra stuff? He goes, no. In fact, every single time I do it, I think I'm going to get a call the next morning saying you're fired and I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> How much fun is it to work with somebody who is that, that sharp, that quick witted to be able to adapt to something that's not part of the game plan? It's his energy, and I think it's his preparation. And the thing that I always appreciated about Kevin, and we would have this conversation, I always said to Kevin, you know, my job is to come here locked and loaded and, and prepared and ready to, ready to roll. And if I don't do that, I feel like I'm letting you down. I feel like I'm letting the producer down, the director, and most importantly, my teammate, the guy next to me. And Kevin had that same philosophy, that same attitude, that same degree of preparation and professionalism. And I just – Honestly, I, I can't ever say enough good things about Kevin. We called Packer preseason games together for 13 years. Uh, we called, uh, obviously, uh, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of games at CBS together, but um, he is just, he is the best guy to work with. There's yeah. no question about it. And he's just, he's just a super nice guy. <clears throat> a couple of wrap-up questions. First of all, how did it feel to be elected to the, I don't know if elected is the right word, but to the University of Delaware Athletics Hall of Fame? You know, it's, it was it was fun. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of success at Delaware. I, they, they gave me an opportunity as a young kid coming out of high school in, in Philadelphia and uh, an older brother that played at Delaware. So um, Delaware is always near and dear to my heart. So to be able to go into the, you know, Athletic Hall of Fame down there was special. And not only that, but to be able to share it with my family and so many of my teammates that were there and that and, uh, helped make it possible. I think that's what's so special about an award like that. And what's what's in the future for you, both in broadcasting and outside of the broadcasting field? You know, I love what I do. I, I you know, I tell people I graduated from college in 1987. And, you know, for the past like 35 years, whatever it's been, I never worked a day in my life. I mean, I played in the NFL for 18 seasons. And of course, um, you know, I've been been calling games and doing radio. And so I, I, I just love what I do. I'm still doing stuff with CBS Sports Network. I'm still um, doing a show on NFL radio a couple of days a week, um, especially during the football season. So I just, I mean, I, I, I just love football so much. And it's such a pleasure to be around the players and the coaches mm -hmm. games and, and to be able to call it and talk about it. I mean, we get, I always tell people I, I get paid to do something I love, you know, which is, uh, and I tell young people, I said, don't worry about when you graduate from college, don't worry about money. Just find something you're passionate about. Find something you love to do. And, and if you, you find it, then you're going to be good at it and you're going to enjoy the process 
And as a result, you're going to be compensated fairly. So um, I, I kind of, I got lucky, David. I, I just, I got a chance to play in the NFL, got a chance to get involved in broadcasting. And here we are all these years later and I'm still doing it. All right. <clears throat> I always wrap up with these two. Uh, one's a question, one's a, a statement, but I always wrap up with these two things. First, talk about your family. Well, I, uh, I always say the two most important decisions you ever you make in your life, one, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and number two, um, you know, finding a good wife. And, and uh, I, almost 30 years ago, I met and married my wife, Shelly, and, uh, you know, she's, she's been my best friend, and, and uh, we were able to raise two daughters together. I have a daughter who just graduated, believe it or not, from medical school. She's now a doctor. And she just began her residency uh, at in Wilmington, Delaware, not far from where I went to college. So she's an emergency uh, emergency room doctor at a level one trauma center in, in, in Delaware. And she's 27. My other daughter, Danielle, is 25. She works for Blackstone uh, in finance in New York City. So um, we are trying to spend more time on the East Coast to be around them. But uh, and I've got a lot of brothers and sisters and, and uh, just just I've been blessed. I got a great family. And as you know, David, family is the most important thing. Yeah. And then finally, and I've had every every conceivable interpretation of the question and answer. And, and I will I'll ask you the question before you answer it. I'll tell you what my favorite answer so far from a, another fellow former chief, Bobby Bell. But my question is, what is your legacy? And Bobby Bell said, when I die, I want, I don't want the preacher. I, how do you wear it? I want to live my life so the preacher don't have to lie at my funeral. So Rich Gannon, what is, what is your legacy? Well, I, first of all, I love Bobby. Uh, I know him well. And uh, it, that's words of wisdom from a great one. I, you know, I think, I, I just hope my legacy is that uh, I try to treat people the right way. I try to be a good son, a good a brother and uh, a good husband, um, a good father. That's, I mean, honestly, a good teammate. I just, that's, that's really what I hope my legacy has been that, that I try to treat people the right way, try to set an example by the way I live my life, try and be a person of great character and integrity and try and be, like you said, a, a good father, a good husband uh, and a good son and a good friend. <clears throat> Great way to wrap it up. I appreciate you joining me. Uh, next time you're in Kansas City for for a game or whatever, uh, you now have my phone number. Give me a call. Love to get together with you. Maybe we'll meet at Grunhardt's house and have Sarah cook us something. We'll just chat for a while. David, that'd be great. Thanks so much for having me. I really All right, appreciate thank it. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.